It is indeed another tremendous blessing that's been given to you and me this morning to gather together in the way that we have already. These hymns of encouragement and, in fact, edification have already lifted us up and, in fact, challenged us to live more powerfully and better for the cause of Christ this week. The prayer in which we were so wonderfully led and, in fact, the opportunity now to study a portion of the Word of God. What a wonderful day in this first day of the week presents to us. We continue today a series of lessons that we began several weeks ago now, one that relates to the Bible books, or that is to say those books of the New Testament this year over which the Bible Bowl questions will be taken. These have been the book of, books of James through Jude, and so far you and I have studied James and First Peter and Second Peter, and today we begin a two-part series of lessons on the book of First John. The book of First John is a very interesting book in many respects. Perhaps amongst those books of the New Testament, it is not quite as familiar to us as some others might very well be. The book is rather brief, some five chapters, a grand total of only 105 verses. Upon reading it, one is not left to question the main theme, the main idea that's to be presented to us. It has typically been my perspective, at least in great help to me, to make note of what the key thought and key verse of a given book is, as well as the key words. I would submit that that's a good thing for each of us to put in the back of our mind. With regard to 1 John, the key clear idea is fellowship with God. How that is described, how that's maintained, in what way it's accomplished, it is a powerful and great theme. And we shall explore that in some depth this morning. Notice the key words, and there are two of them in this book. One is the word love. Forty-six times in five chapters that word appears. And not only that, the other key word, as you can know, is the word know, K-N-O-W, and it occurs 38 times in this short span of 105 verses. We immediately can appreciate by virtue of those observations alone this fact. To be in fellowship with God is a fundamental truth both Old and New Testament emphasize it, and this book, John, focuses the spotlight upon it in great detail indeed. In fact, as we discuss that today, we shall have to explore deeply what it means to be in fellowship. And may I already suggest that many in our world are confused about that idea. They perceive that that fellowship is achieved in ways that John says it is not achieved by. We'll need to understand the clarity of that presentation, and to that we shall go in just a very few moments today. When you and I ponder a fellowship, think about characters of the Old Testament. It was said of Enoch, he walked with God. What a dramatic affirmation that he was in fellowship with God. Genesis 5, 22-24. One chapter later, Noah walked with God. Genesis 6, verse 9. Is it not fair then to say that when they walked with God, that is a description that ought to be also so for you and me? Isn't it wonderful to be able to walk with God? Without further ado, let us then ask about the character of how is the fellowship with God based? That is to say, how is it formed and how is it brought to, to accomplishment? This will be the first element or the first segment in our lesson this morning. The whole idea of fellowship with God takes us back to the opening stanza of the entire Bible. Adam and Eve, when God fashioned and created them, they enjoyed the ultimate fellowship with Him. 
We can even recall that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. They were immortal spirits. They were sinless in every respect, and they had fellowship with Him. But in Genesis chapter 3, they lost it. It was taken from them by the nature of sin. What happened on that occasion? As Eve first partook of that forbidden fruit, gave to Adam and he did eat, immediately they began to cover themselves for they knew they were in sin. Perhaps it's best described from the very book that we're now studying. In 1 John 3 verse 4, we notice this monumental statement. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. What had they done? God had said in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, You are not to partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that tree in the midst of the garden. They did the very thing that God told them not to do, and as such they transgressed His law and became guilty of sin. And what does sin do? Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. What transpired then in Isaiah's day is the very same matter that had happened here to Adam and Eve. Sin had separated them from God, and that fellowship was destroyed. They no longer had it. May I suggest that from that chapter until the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, is the monumental declaration of God's reestablishment of that fellowship through the grace of His Son. That's what the rest of the Bible is all about. You and I today can enjoy fellowship with God, but to do so we must accomplish the same thing that Adam and Eve needed. We too need to somehow take care of the sin that's in our life, and only then can we enjoy the fellowship that God intends us to enjoy. Fellowship with God, that's the theme of this book. John over and again will remind them of the basic truths necessary for its maintenance and those basic truths needed to, establishment, to establish it at the outset. We made mention in the Old Testament, those men like Noah and those men like Enoch, they lived in a day and in a time when, of course, Jesus had nowhere in the, in the vicinity come at that point. The Old Testament could not offer the fullness of forgiveness of sin. How was it that the Hebrew writer presented that truth in Hebrews 10 verse 4? The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Now, they offered them by commandment of God. and They did so in order to be favorable in His sight. But those were matters that looked forward unto the ultimate sacrifice of His Son, who on that occasion would ultimately forgive the entirety of sin in the Old Testament era. Hebrews, 10, Hebrews 9, verses 15, 16, and 17. To make those statements leads us then to say, you and I live this side of the physical life of Christ. He has already lived upon this earth. He gave His life at Calvary, and now... God has a plan that provides fellowship with Him. John will emphasize that plan in this book. To study that emphasis, first let's come to verse number 3 of chapter 1. This was the text that Brother Eddie read for us just a few moments ago. Would you please read that with me again? That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, 
And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. First point of observation. What is the agency, the medium through which that fellowship with God can be enjoyed? Let me again read a portion of verse 3 and lay a special emphasis upon one of the words to be found in it. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. That's a reference to Christ. They had seen Him, they had heard Him, they had listened to His teachings. But now the next word, a four-letter word, the coordinating conjunction, that. That you may have fellowship with God. John, how do we have fellowship with God? It's through the one we've seen and heard. It's none other than Jesus Christ. First major point that they needed to know, and it's set forth at the very beginning of this epistle. Fellowship with God is attained only in one way. There are not multitudes and various and many particular ways, though men may think otherwise. Fellowship with God occurs only through Jesus Christ, His Son. Notice how other passages help us understand that too. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's about as exclusive a statement as to be found anywhere in the sacred pages of the Word of God. In that very same chapter, in verse 23, Jesus there said that He and the Father will come and dwell with them that obey the Scriptures. That's it. Fellowship with God through Jesus. That stands in rather stark contrast, wouldn't you agree, to the perspectives that many seem to present to the mind of very many individuals today. Is it not true that some feel that they can enjoy fellowship with God by interacting with nature? Let us say now that nature is God's beautiful creation, and you and I are expected to be good stewards of it, but do we attain fellowship with Him by pursuing it? No, we don't. Furthermore, there are others who will proclaim that a life that is lived in goodness and fairness and being a good neighbor to others is enough to wage fellowship with God. Is that true? There's no question that in the interest of humanity we should strive to do good to those about us. But does that set before us fellowship with God? It does not. John here again exclusively said fellowship with Him is to be enjoyed only through His Son. But there are many other things presented to you and me as well. There are a whole host of individuals upon our earth who in fact perceive and pursue after self-interests in the sense of self-purity. We again cannot say anything against the thought of good moral ethical living. But does it produce fellowship with God in and of itself? Or what about those who proclaim that the book called the Quran, which is the Muslim book of religion, that only in that is to be found? Fellowship with Allah, with the, the, the one they recognize as God. According to this verse, that can't be true. It's only through Christ. It doesn't matter what, in sincerity and others, things may be presented. Fellowship is only gained through Jesus in fact, that very last term, sincerity, is worthy of another comment. For as you read the book of 1 John, you seem to gain the impression that John has a specific false doctrine in mind. For he mentions various ideas too often. And in fact, historically, that is one of the key things to be noted about this book. 
At the time John wrote this book, there was a rather prevalent false teaching that had become rather common in that area of the world. It was a corruption of Christianity. Here are two of its bases. First, it said that the body and the spirit are so sufficiently distinct that though the body may engage in that which is evil, the spirit need not do so. And in that separation, they were unwilling to believe that Jesus had ever come in the flesh. They thought then that inasmuch as Jesus was here on earth, he was a ghost or some kind of an apparition, purely spirit but not flesh. Might I ask you to notice at this point how serious that false doctrine is. For if Jesus never came in the flesh, could he have suffered in the flesh? No. If he never came in the flesh, could thus at the cross he as the Lamb of God have been sacrificed physically for the sins of humanity? No, he couldn't. Hence, if we question the fact he came in the flesh, we must question his eternal sacrifice for our sins. Obviously, if that's true, we're still lost. You see, John's point is this. Verse 1 of chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. John very powerfully says, We heard him, we touched him, we saw him, he was in the flesh. And we must never forget it. God dispatched his Son from heaven to meet the needs of a sinful world, and he came in the flesh. But the second false doctrine, one related to that, had to do with the matter of special knowledge. This was the Gnostic form of religion of the time. We noted earlier that the word know is a key word in this book. Might you note with me, the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word that means to know. That had to do with the following, that they thought that there were special kinds of knowledge and only privileged few could understand it. Only privileged ones could receive and teach that knowledge. John said that isn't true. John said the precious power of God through Christ is available to everybody who will simply enjoy the fellowship with Him through the blood of His Son. There aren't selected privileged few who could enjoy the fellowship with God. In the Old Testament, the descendants of Abraham through Jacob, the children of Israel, were the only ones that had received the law of Moses. The Gentiles never received that law. But in the New Testament era, every person is subject to the same law. God is no respecter of persons, Acts 10, 34 and 35. Peter resoundingly said of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that receiveth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Oh, the joy then of this book of 1 John when we see that fellowship can be enjoyed with God by any of us. God doesn't cast me or you out just because we weren't born in the right place, just because we in fact have the wrong kind of skin color or something like that. Every person can enjoy fellowship with God. In fact, as we look a little bit deeper into this consideration, might we also observe the following set of ideas as well. Is it not true from what we've just learned that sincerity alone is simply insufficient? Return with me thus to 1 John 4 verse 1. When we speak about sincerity, notice here what John affirmed. Beloved, 
Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they be of God, for many false prophets are gone out into the world. We have noted in our studies over the past few weeks on Sunday evening the nature of false prophecy. Is it not also true here that John says, Christians, there are others that are going to teach you things that are not in regard to true fellowship with God. They're going to teach you that Gnosticism and these other things is what leads you to true fellowship. Don't you believe them, for they're not speaking the truth. In a symbolic way, very little has changed, my friend. We can see that just as surely as John says many false prophets were in the world in his day, it is still that way. There are still many who would teach us that fellowship with God is attained in ways that are not what the Scriptures reveal. Will it not thus be sad on the day of judgment when there will be many who shall stand there and fully expect that they have been in fellowship with God and Jesus will say, I never knew you. Why so? Matthew 7, 21 and 22. There Jesus said, Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? They thought they were in fellowship with him. They called him Lord. They even stated they'd cast out demons in his name. They had taught in his name. But Jesus' remark is an overwhelming justification of our point today. Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Jesus, how could that be? They spoke in your name. They taught in your name. They cast out demons in your name. And yet he said, I never knew you. They had never come into fellowship with him. May we thus learn the dramatic lesson today that fellowship with God is fundamentally significant. It doesn't matter what I may think generates it or what you may think generates it. The Bible says it only comes through the nature of Christ. You and I must be in Him. We must abide in Him. We must live in Him. To see how John further develops these points, would you notice some other thoughts from the book of 1 John with me? Jesus indeed did come in the flesh as we noted. Notice chapter 5 verse 20. Very near the end of the book. Here's one thing that you and I know. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true. And we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Isn't it fascinating to hear John make statements like that in light of the false teaching that was present then, where some were saying that you had to be gifted and special. John said, here's what we know. Jesus has come. He has given us an understanding. He did not say only a few can understand it. All of us are privileged and blessed to stand at the foot of the cross and receive the truth revealed in the Scriptures and in that truth to enjoy fellowship with God. You and I live in a confused world in that sense. So many who state various and sundry things that will generate fellowship, may we remember, believe not every spirit. We must teach our young people that that fellowship comes only in this way so that when they grow and are faced with this myriad of false teachings, they will not succumb to it. They'll not believe it. They'll not, in fact, proceed to follow it. And even others that we know, 
our neighbors and friends so much confusion when in fact it's so simple. Again, one exclusive path to heaven, to God, Jesus Christ, His Son. But consider another point with me. Notice verse 27 of chapter 2. 1 John 2, verse 27. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as he hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. These who thought that they had special knowledge taught that you must hear our teaching, or else you can never come to have fellowship with God. John says that isn't true. You understand that the scriptures and the revelation of God alone is enough to teach you what you must do, what you need to do to be, in order to be saved. These points have been a dramatic contrast to what we've seen already. Now in terms of fellowship, let's cast the spotlight more carefully. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter number 1. We have previously read verse 3. Notice how it continues into verse 4 in these words. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. The fullness of joy that you and I have in Jesus. John says that's why I've written these things. I haven't written them for any arbitrary purpose or reason, but rather that your joy, your appreciation of salvation itself may in fact be complete, may be full. If the salvation is full and complete, then that means nothing's left out or nothing's omitted. Here is the entirety and fullness of our understanding of fellowship with God. Thus, in verse 6 of chapter 1, listen to John explain it. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. We immediately learn then that fellowship with God is equated to walking in the light. It is equated on this occasion to the beauty of walking in the light of God. We shall find that that's one of the other beautiful recognitions of this book that's also shown in the Bible. There is a giant difference between darkness and light. Jesus said, or John's rather said on this occasion, if you and I are in fellowship with God, we aren't walking in darkness. For if we are, we're only lying. We're deceiving ourselves. We're in fact painting a false picture. If you and I have fellowship with God, we will not walk in darkness. What does that mean? Well, let us look further. Notice that walking in the light means what else? From various passages to be found in the Bible. That walking in the light is equated to walking in the relationship of the Word of God. That is to say, walking in accordance to the revelation of His will. In Psalms, especially in the book of Psalms, we have some of the following verses. Verse 105 reminds us, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thus, the light of God that reveals for us the way in which we should walk shows us that fellowship with Him is in accordance to His revealed truth. But that's but one verse among a host of others that might well be listed. I've shown you so several there on the sheet, but I would ask that you look at two of them in the book of 1 John itself. In 1 John 2 verse 3, a text that maybe you and I have often reflected upon because it is so powerful. And hereby we do know that we know Him 
if we keep His commandments. Might I ask you to reflect upon that with me? How do you and I know that we know God? Is it because I say I do? Is it because that there's particular physical witnesses to that point? Maybe you've been in conversation with someone who says, I know I'm saved. And you ask, how do you know? And he says, well, because I know it in my heart, I feel it. You have every right to ask. And so, who is the other witness to your salvation? You seem to be one. You need at least two. John says, hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. It doesn't matter how earnest and how sincere that person may be. If he or she is not keeping the commandments of God, he doesn't know God. It's that simple. God says, here is the one way you know that you know me. You keep my commandments. Jesus had earlier said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 14, 15. He said, you're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. John 15, 14. In John 14, 21, he had affirmed also that you and I know him and love him when we keep his commandments. The world doesn't always listen and hear that very favorably. They prefer quite often to base matters on emotion and to base things on what dad and mother believed and what grandma believed. And certainly we do not wish to insult family heritage or history. But when we're dealing with eternity, friend, we need the assurance of a thus saith the Lord. God said, hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And thus there's the other witness. When God says I'm saved, that finalizes it, doesn't it? And Jesus had earlier affirmed, as well as the other New Testament writers, the fact that we know we're saved when we do that which Jesus says produces salvation. It's thus a fair point for you and me to observe at this point. Again, fellowship based on Jesus and nothing else. Fellowship through Him and no other medium. But that leads us to then notice verse 7 of chapter 1. If we walk in the light as He is in the light... We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. We see then how that fellowship with God is maintained. We can well then answer the first element of the lesson. That fellowship is established when we obey His commandments and come into fellowship covenant with Him. That happens, of course, at the scene of baptism, when our sins are washed away, and thus nothing is there to separate us from Him. We enjoy complete and total spiritual fellowship with Him. But now the next question. Unless I pass away or die at the moment I come out of the watery grave of baptism, there's some amount of time until I physically die or until the Lord returns. How do I maintain that fellowship with Him throughout life? John also answers that question. Isn't that also a good one? After all, as John addresses that point, Notice with me verse 8 of chapter 1. 1 John 1 verse number 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You and I know that we can't say, I never sin. We all know that there are moments of weakness, moments of failure. I do things and say things and I think things that I shouldn't and I regret that I do so. And what's more, I even fail to do those good things that God has told me to do. None of us can honestly and with straight face say, I never sin. We know better than that. 
Even the great apostle Paul was in that situation, wasn't he? In Romans 7, he described this great civil war that raged within him. He said, I find myself doing the things that I wish I wouldn't. And I find myself leaving undone the things I know I ought to do. In verse 24 of that chapter, he concluded by saying, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Even Paul wasn't sinlessly perfect. But John tells us something here, doesn't he? We can't honestly say we never commit sin, but what about those sins? In verse 7, the verse we just read, If we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And what? The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us. Here's one of those points when the tense of the Greek word is rather significant. In essence, if we could restate it as this, he says, The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. If you and I walk in the light, as he is in the light, Day by day, striving with all the energy within us to follow His commandments and do His will, even when we mess up, an impure thought crosses our mind, or a word is spoken in a way that's not proper and right, the blood of Christ continually flows to cleanse that. Now, let it be noted, verse number 9, we should confess it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And thus, if we have offended someone by what we've said, we should confess that, but the blood of Christ will at that point cleanse, take it away. But with regard to that impure thought, that was something internal to me. When I make acknowledgement, acknowledgement of the error of that, the blood of Christ will cleanse that from me if I'm walking in the light we begin to note the fellowship with God is that significant. It's a protective shield that will keep us until the day of our departure from this life. But we with energy and earnestness and zeal and commitment must pursue His will and thus walk in the light. It is at this point that some have raised a rather dramatic issue with the book of 1 John. For at least in the mind of some, and you may have read others who make this statement, that John contradicts himself. I'd ask you to look at those verses with me in which they say that happens. For it touches the very subject before us at this point. Again, verse 8 of chapter 1, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, which clearly seems to indicate that you and I should understand that we do not live sinlessly perfect. We are guilty of impurity, sin, in various ways. Verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Those two verses have seemingly stated that then we should not state that we never commit sin. For we will, but we need the advocacy of Jesus. But then the problem comes in comparing those two with 1 John 3. Notice with me verse 9 of 1 John 3. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. There have been those through the years who upon reading that verse have questioned their salvation. They have reasoned as follows. That verse says, if I'm born of God, and I was baptized, I became a Christian, but that verse promises me I'll never sin. And 
and they say that because I know I'm still guilty of sin, I must have never been saved. I'm not worthy of the blood of Christ, of course, but I'm not in a saved state. How do you and I look upon those verses, and what's the teaching? Here's the teaching. Let's revisit verse 8 of chapter 1. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That teaching is as follows. And also, verse 1 of chapter 2, These things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, the Greek tense of the verb is that of momentary commitment of sin. That is, if a person every now and then, or at least temporarily, momentarily committing those things that are sinful, that's the kind of discussion that's in place there. But the tense of the verb is very different in verse 1 John 3 verse 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not continually commit sin. That is to say, does not live a habitual, continual life of sin. There's the distinction. Each of us, even though in fellowship with God, will stumble. We will do things that we ought not, fail to do things we should. That's what's under discussion in chapter 1. And we should confess those things and beseech the forgiveness of God for them. This verse 9 of chapter 3, that means in fellowship with God, we do not live habitual, continual lives of sin. That, of course, is a different matter, isn't it? That indicates a person who does not place the priority of God first. They understand that they're in sin, but they continue to do that over and over, and as such live a habitual, continual life in it. That's what's being described here, and hence there's no contradiction at all. The verses are describing basically different matters. But doesn't that hastily bring us to verse 24 of chapter 2? It would be fair in some ways to consider this the key verse of the book. It reads, Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye shall also continue in the Son and in the Father. Three verbs are especially noted. Did you note the interest in them? Continue, abide, remain. You and I can't give up on the Savior. If we are to abide in Him, we must continue in what we've learned and remain in that. Now that perhaps is not so surprising once we think of it from the fact that we know we must be faithful until death, Revelation 2.10. But notice the three verbs, how it emphasizes it. Today, are you continuing in Him? Are you remaining in Him? Are you abiding in Him? Those are fair questions. If the answer is no, then my friend, you or I, the one in that state is separated from God. For in notice He said, if it's not abiding in us, if the Word's not remaining in us, if the truth isn't continuing in us, then we are not in fellowship with Him. That leads us then to notice the final point of our lesson this morning. The fact that there were some in John's day who did not enjoy the fellowship. Notice the Antichrists of verses 18 and 19. That's another term that we hear so frequently. It's used in a way that's very different from the way the Scriptures use it. You see, the Antichrist, we notice in verse 18, are those who, in fact... There were many at the time. 
quite often we hear about there being one Antichrist who shall arise near the end of the world. John says, little children, it is the last hour. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. We thus should not accept and believe that there's going to be one person arise in a powerful way. John said there were many of them then. Everywhere that word is used, the connotation is the same. We shouldn't be deluded by the false teaching of those who try to paint a graphic and vivid picture. There were many antichrists then, and there are still those who oppose the truth of the gospel, those who are not those that encourage fellowship with him. As we close our lesson then today, may we not in fairness state that we've learned a great deal about fellowship. It comes only through Christ, exclusively through him. It's maintained by association with His Word and by the nature of the blood that He shed on our behalf. The contacting of that blood is, of course, a fundamental thing. Have you contacted it, which occurs only in baptism? Acts 22:16 remind us of that point, as well as Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Today, if we need to assist you in accomplishing that, how joyful it would be for us and you, but if your fellowship with God has been terminated because you have gone back into a world of sin, come back to that first love. Come back to the very God who not only knows you but loves you and wants you to know and appreciate Him as well. If we could assist you in doing that today, in maintaining fellowship with Him, will you not come and let that be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?